You're listening to the Super Talk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super. Hello, and welcome to Super Talk. My name is Gary West, and I'm the Senior Manager, Media and Communications with AIST. I'm joined by Brishni Mukhopadhyay, a product specialist at Western Asset focused on sustainable investment and ESG. We'll be discussing what is natural capital? Why do we need to account for natural capital? How are accounting practices and financial disclosures evolving? What role does the financial sector play? And how does Western Asset evaluate natural capital in assessing sovereign or corporate entities? Brishni, thanks for joining. Diving straight into the discussion, for those who are not familiar with it, how do you define natural capital? Sure, and hello, Gary, and thank you for having me today. So when one looks at natural capital, the definition that the OECD has come up with is that it encompasses a whole range of natural resource assets and services that contribute to economic production. And they've tended to divide it into largely three broad categories, ecosystems, natural reserve, and land. And this may include elements such as, say, agriculture, biodiversity, fisheries, ecosystem, aquaculture, soil, minerals, animals, forests, as some key components that are part of this natural capital definition. For the superannuation industry, and particularly the investment teams at super funds, what's the relevance and importance of natural capital to them? Sure. Natural capital is clearly becoming crucially important. And if you look at the study that was conducted by the World Economic Forum, nearly half the world's GDP, that's approximately 44 trillion, is dependent on nature and therefore exposed to the risks of natural capital. Now, the seminal report, the Das Gupta Review, which was published last year, identifies nature as a most precious asset. It talks about the limitations of using GDP as the only way to gauge economic growth. And it talks about how the GDP and indeed economic growth are both implicitly built on resource utilization and extraction from nature. And when that is not replenished, the gap widens over time and thereby has a negative impact on the economy. Indeed, there's a research that suggested that the decline in natural capital resources has been nearly 40% over the past few decades, with nearly a million species facing extinction. Now, if one looks to dive further into elements, of, some, some elements certainly of natural capital, such as, say, agriculture, clearly there's been research that suggests that food crop and agricultural yields have been impacted by climate change, with rising temperature affecting the yields of, say, wheat, maize, rice, and soybean, for instance. Now, the contribution of agriculture as a percentage of GDP does indeed vary across countries. But what's undeniable is that given the growth in population, that that growth in terms of agricultural land has often come at the detriment of forest cover and biodiversity. And that again presents a challenge because say UN sustainable development goals specifically say around zero hunger. Now, if you move on to say biodiversity as an element, there's a study that was done by the IPBES, which identified nearly three quarters of fruits or seed crops being dependent on insects, bees, butterflies, and other pollinators. Now, almost 40% of these pollinators face extinction. 
The contribution that these pollinators make to agriculture, according to some estimates, is within the range of about 250 to $550 billion annually. That's a significant amount. Now, the Global Biodiversity Framework, which came out with a plan in terms of how this can be addressed, suggested around, say, 0.7% to 1% of annual GDP contribution. So certainly something that can be looked at by several countries. If one then moves on to, say, fisheries and aquaculture, for instance, one would notice that the stocks of sustainably farmed fish, biologically sustainable levels, have fallen from nearly 90% to about two-thirds right now, just over the past three decades. Now, according to the OECD again, the fisheries industry contributes between one and a half trillion to three trillion in terms of annual revenue, so that that decline has a very tangible and material impact. And if you look at the number of people that are employed in the fisheries industry, that's nearly 60 million, and a high proportion of which are women, which is again very closely linked to say gender diversity, not to mention the UN SDG again in terms of marine and water conservation as well. Again, when one looks at ecosystems and forests, deforestation has been quite prominent in certain segments of the world. And again, it tends to be in areas of forest cover which have existed for a long time and which can't get replenished very quickly or overnight. Indeed, the World Wildlife Fund and the Living Planet Report, which was published in 2020, suggests that since 1970, there's been an almost two thirds decline in species worldwide. Clearly, there is a very tangible link and natural capital needs to be accounted for. So how do you account for natural capital and how are accounting practices and financial disclosures related to natural capital evolving? Sure, and that's where it's important to realize that the industry is still at a very nascent stage. And while clearly the need to account for, for natural capital is important, financial disclosures are still evolving. Now, the system of integrated environmental and economic accounting, the SEEA, under the agents of the UN Committee on Experts on Environmental and Economic Accounting, that's the UNCEEA, links economic and environmental metrics, but it's still at a very nascent stage as well. And again, it comprises three key parts, the SEEA Central Framework, the SEEA Ecosystem Accounting, and the SEEA Applications and Extensions. Additionally, if you look at the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, TNFD, it too is looking at creating a framework that allows organizations to incorporate and report on national capital related risks and opportunities. At this stage, it's envisaged that this has some sort of similarity to the TCFD in some respects. Now, addition to that, if you look at the EU SFDR, some of the principal adverse impact indicators identify biodiversity and whether biodiversity has been in integrated into assessment. It is hoped that better disclosure on these nature-related metrics will allow investors to direct capital away from investments that harm natural capital and towards more positive outcomes. But it has to be stressed that it is an evolving area and that as it catches up, more data would allow investors to make more nuanced and more thoughtful decisions. What role does the financial sector play in relation to natural capital? The financial sector can clearly play a very pivotal role here, Gary. I mean, again, as I mentioned earlier, it can help direct capital to businesses and sovereigns whose policies align and whose actions seek to mitigate the degradation of natural capital, for instance. 
It may include methods such as, say, decarbonization of portfolios, investment into businesses, technologies that improve agricultural fishing efficiency, for instance, activities that promote recyclability, circular economy, and mitigate some of the risks of overconsumption. It may consider, say, the contribution of natural capital on GDP, revenues, capex, free cash flows, and the risk arising from not integrating these natural capital factors on debt financing and economic growth, for instance. Additionally, it could also look at, say, labeled bonds, bonds such as, say, green sustainability-linked bonds or sustainable bonds. Interestingly, a study recently found out that while there has been a growth in terms of these labeled thematic bonds, the overwhelming majority of such bonds are towards, say, renewable energy, energy efficiency, and that only about 5 to 10% is directed to address natural capital-related factors such as biodiversity, ecosystems, and other nature-based solutions. Now, while there have been bonds whose user proceeds have related to direct capital to such measures, or bonds with specific KPIs that look at addressing some of these criteria, clearly more needs to be done in terms of issuances of such bonds as well. And some of it, again, ties back to some of the metrics that I alluded to earlier as well, or the lack of thereof. I'd again reiterate that the financial sector is clearly very data dependent and data is still in its infancy, but not including material natural capital issues into assessment clearly poses a risk and is too big to ignore. How does Western Asset evaluate natural capital? Sure. And I'd again reiterate that data is still nascent. But at Western Asset, we look at natural capital as one of several factors that can be considered where it's material. Now, to begin with corporates, for instance, first, it has to be recognized that the materiality of various natural capital factors certainly varies across certain sectors. Now, there are certain sectors by the very nature of the business that are likely to be more exposed to elevated risks. So, for instance, if you look at, say, the paper and pulp industry, metals and mining, construction, oil and gas, transportation, chemicals or beverages, just to identify some sectors, these clearly tend to have a larger exposure to natural capital than many other sectors. Now, while one can consider material factors such as carbon emissions, water consumptions and usage and toxic emissions as it goes ahead, one also needs to understand the nuances of some of these sectors. So if we take, for example, the paper and the pulp industry, one has to realize that the treatment of, say, net versus gross carbon emissions is very different. And indeed, virgin fiber producers typically tend to receive a green bond kind of treatment, despite often having a larger carbon and environmental footprint than paper companies that utilize recycled fiber, for instance. Now, again, as a sector, this particular sector, the paper and pulp industry, has significant water stress exposure, risks and liabilities as well. And the need to recycle is far more imperative. Biodiversity is, again, a very crucial aspect for this particular sector as well. But irrespective of the sector, what has to be stressed is that apart from analysis, it has to be backed up by engagement as well. Engagement either collaboratively or engagement with these issues on a one-to-one. I'm pleased to say that Western Asset, for instance, is one of the founders of the United Nations Principles of Responsible Investments Plastics Working Group that focuses on circular economy. Now, a circular economy focuses on waste from being produced in the first place. It looks at methodologies of waste and pollution, recyclability, and how to regenerate nature. Now, Western Asset actively engages companies in the packaging sector to support the vision of the Ellen MacArthur 
Foundation's New Plastics Economy, for instance. Now, if you look at sovereigns, again, natural capital is one of several factors that we consider as part of our assessment. We look at normalizing sovereigns three-year average GDP and look at its exposure, natural capital being one of them, among others, its ability of the sovereign to withstand the changes, adapt and mitigate these material risks. We also, where material, look at policies that have been enacted by many of these sovereign nations as well. Again, it's important to say that data is in its infancy and as policies become more pronounced or more tangible in terms of their impact, it would allow the financial industry, again, going back to the previous point that I was making in the earlier question, to make a more nuanced and a reasoned judgment. That's all for this episode of Super Talk. Thanks to Brishni Mukhopadhyay of Western Asset. For more episodes of Super Talk and for more information on the work of the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, visit our website at aist.asn.au and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.